win confidence by deserving it. Quintilian described the orator as a good man skilled in speaking. He was talking about sincerity and character. Nothing said in this episode, nor anything which will be said, can take the place of this essential attribute of speaking effectiveness. Pierpont Morgan said that character was the best way to obtain credit. It is also the best way to win the confidence of the audience. The sincerity with which a man speaks, said Alexander Wolcott, imparts to his voice a color of truth no perjurer can feign. Especially when the purpose of our talk is to convince, it is necessary to set forth our own ideas with the inner glow that comes from sincere conviction. We must first be convinced before we attempt to convince others. Walter Dill Scott former president of Northwestern University, said that every idea, concept, or conclusion which enters the mind is held as true unless hindered by some contradictory idea. That boils down to keeping the audience yes-minded. My good friend, Professor Harry Overstreet, brilliantly examined the psychological background of this concept in a lecture at the New School for Social Research in New York City. The skillful speaker gets at the outset a number of yes responses. He has thereby set the psychological processes of his listeners moving in the affirmative direction. It is like the movement of a billiard ball, propel it in one direction, and it takes some force to deflect it, far more force to send it back in the opposite direction. The psychological patterns here are quite clear. When a person says no, and really means it, he is doing far more than saying a word of two letters. His entire organism, glandular, nervous, muscular, gathers itself together into a condition of rejection. There is usually a minute, but sometimes in observable degree, a physical withdrawal or readiness for withdrawal. The whole neuromuscular system, in short, sets itself on guard against acceptance, where, on the contrary, a person says, yes, none of the withdrawing activities takes place. The organism is in a forward-moving, accepting, open attitude, hence, the more yeses we can at the very outset induce, the more likely we are to succeed in capturing the attention for our ultimate proposal. It is a very simple technique, this yes response, and yet, how much neglected? It often seems as if people get a sense of their own importance by antagonizing at the outset. The radical comes into a conference with his conservative brethren, and immediately, you must make them furious. What, as a matter of fact, is the good of it? If he simply does it in order to get some pleasure out of it for himself, he may be pardoned. But if he expects to achieve something, he is only psychologically stupid. Get a student to say no at the beginning, or a customer, a child, husband, or wife, and it takes the wisdom and patience of angels to transform that bristling negative into an affirmative. How is one going to get these desirable yes responses at the very outset? Fairly simple, my way of opening and winning an argument, confided Lincoln is to first find a common ground of agreement. Lincoln found it even when he was discussing the highly inflammable subject of slavery. 
For the first half hour, declared the mirror, a neutral paper reporting one of his talks. His opponents would agree with every word he uttered. From that point, he began to lead them off, little by little, until it seemed as if he had got them all into his fold. Is it not evident that the speaker who argues with his audience isn't merely arousing their stubbornness, putting them on the defensive, making it well-nigh impossible for them to change their minds? Is it wise to start by saying, I'm going to prove so-and-so? Aren't your hearers liable to accept that as a challenge and remark silently? Let's see you do it. Is it not much more advantageous to begin by stressing something that you and all of your hearers believe, and then to raise some pertinent question that everyone would like to have answered? Then take your audience with you in an earnest search for the answer. While on that search, present the facts as you see them so clearly that they will be led to accept your conclusions as their own. They will have much more faith in some truth that they have discovered for themselves. The best argument is that which seems merely an explanation. In every controversy, no matter how wide and bitter the difference is, there is always some common ground of agreement on which a speaker can invite everyone to meet. To illustrate, on February 3, 1960, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Harold Macmillan, addressed both houses of the Parliament of the Union of South Africa. He had to present the United Kingdom's non-racial viewpoint before the legislature body at a time when apartheid was the prevailing policy. Did he begin his talk with this essential difference in outlook? No. He began by stressing the great economic progress made by South Africa, the significant contributions made by South Africa to the world. Then, with skill and tact, he brought up the questions of differing viewpoints. Even here, he indicated that he was well aware that these differences were based on sincere conviction. His whole talk was a masterly statement reminding one of Lincoln's gentle but firm utterances in the years before Fort Sumter. As a fellow member of the Commonwealth, said the Prime Minister, it is our earnest desire to give South Africa our support and encouragement, but I hope you won't mind my saying frankly that there are some aspects of your policies which make it impossible for us to do this without being false to our deep convictions about the political destinies of free men to which in our own territories we are trying to give effect. I think we ought as friends to face together without seeking to apportion credit or blame. The fact that in the world of today, this difference of outlook lies between us. No matter how determined one was to differ with a speaker, a statement like that would tend to convince you of the speaker's fair-mindedness. What would have been the result had Prime Minister Macmillan set out immediately to emphasize the difference in policy rather than the common ground of agreement? Professor James Harvey Robinson's enlightening book, The Mind in the Making, gives the psychological answer to that question. We sometimes find ourselves changing our minds without any resistance or heavy emotion. But if we are told we are wrong, we resent the imputation and harden our hearts. We are incredibly heedless in the formation of our beliefs, 
but find ourselves filled with an illicit passion for them when anyone proposes to rob us of their companionship. It is obviously not the ideas themselves that are dear to us, but our self-esteem which is threatened. The little word my is the most important one in human affairs, and properly to reckon with it is the beginning of wisdom. It has the same force whether it is my dinner, my dog, and my house, or my faith, my country, and my God. We not only resent the imputation that our watch is wrong or our car shabby, but that our conception of the kennels of Mars, of the pronunciation of Epictetus, of the medicinal value of Celestine, or of the date of Sargon I, are subject to revision. We like to continue to believe what we have been accustomed to accept as true, and the resentment aroused when doubt is cast upon any of our assumptions leads us to seek every manner of excuse for clinging to it. The result is that most of our so-called reasoning consists in finding arguments for going on believing as we already do.